Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me, yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting, all sweating daggers, believe it, I'm the real thing, but I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone! Welcome back to The Grid. I'm really excited about today's guest. We have Steven Flavel, aka Jorbs. He's a strategy game streamer and Twitch partner with over 65,000 followers. He has a multi-game background. He started in chess, then moved to Magic the Gathering, then became an online poker pro, which is of course where The Grid comes in. He normally today streams Slay the Spire, um, as well as other strategy games, including Hearthstone, and has a YouTube channel where he gives video game tutorials. He also has a lot of unique insights into the intersection of streaming, strategy, and competition, which I'm super excited to get into after his hand. And luckily for me, he helped our grid project out considerably. Right, bringing a combination, throwing back to his poker days with the four deuce offsuit. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, um, I, I'm so excited to get into all the streaming. Just because you know, we have so many guests on the grid that play games outside poker, but you play so many different games. So that's a really great perspective. But, you know, give us a little bit of a throwback into a, the time in your life where poker was the most important game. I started with chess and I learned chess on the floor of my grandfather's office while he was reading the Bible. And he was like not evangelical at all, but he looked after me in the afternoons after school. My parents were at work and I didn't work out. He was reading the Bible for like 10 years or something after the fact. He was just like reading some weird big book and he gave me a big book too. He gave me 500 grandmaster games of chess. And I would like have a board and I'd work through all the moves and everything. And that became a huge part of my identity. It was like a meditative space. It was a space where he and I were both silent and reflective and learning things. And it became really important to me to be good at games and to win at games and to be part of that tradition of like grandmasters playing a strategy game. And so I played chess, I played Magic the Gathering. And eventually I found out that poker felt a lot like playing Magic the Gathering, except I made a lot more money. So, so yeah, I got into online poker back in about 2007 or 8 and played somewhat prolifically in online cash games up until April of 2011, which is, of course, when a lot of people had to move away from online poker in the States. And did you play live very often? Because, of course, the hand that you bring us today is from a home game, right? Yeah, so I mostly played online. I hit up the commerce in LA a couple of times to play some cash games. But if you're used to playing online on 16 tables or something like that, it's a whole different world focusing in on one cash hand, I feel like. And it wasn't something that I developed incredibly great skills for. The, the hand that I've brought is from a home game 
after 2011 when I was like, I am this competitive poker player. I play against other people who are very good at poker and I beat them. And that's my identity. And that's important to me. This is a very toxic part of my life, I think. Um, and I was like, well, I can't do that on poker anymore. What if I tried having fun with it? Can't you have fun playing games? And so, uh, so I jumped into this home game and was having a couple of beers, just trying really hard to enjoy myself and ended up ended up in, in this awkward spot. So th- what kind of home game was it? Was it friends? Like, uh, how'd you get invited? It was actually friends of my parents. Um, they were in like a book club group together. And the man of the couple was really into poker and spreading his own home game and stuff. And it came up that I had played somewhat seriously. My mother was like, yeah, he plays professionally. I'm not sure she really could convey just how deep I was into like playing $2,000 buy-in games on stars and stuff. I'm not sure she really knew the terminology to convey that to him at the time, but he invited me along and it was sort of exciting to get that invite. And I think it was exciting for him to have someone who like really did this for real in the game with them that night. And so um, at what point in the home game um, did this, you know, pivotal hand come up with four deuce offsuit that you know, apparently still uh, haunts you to this day. Yeah, it was about an hour and a half into the game. It was very low stakes for what I was used to. People were buying in for like $20 and stuff. The table atmosphere was very confusing to me because I thought we were there to have fun, but people seemed like awkward and quiet and Uh, especially in hands with me it felt a little bit like people were like intimidated and i just wanted this to be an enjoyable experience for me and for other people and so i like opened up another beer uh i started opening a little bit loose so i thought we'd get into some splashy pots so you um had been playing for like an hour and a half and you're drinking a little bit and opening more and you get four deuce off and like that's just like way too default Oh, they can make quads two different ways. I could make two different flushes. It's a connected hand. It's just, that's a premium in this sort of situation, isn't it? I mean, am I wrong? I might be wrong. It's been a while since I played poker. But it seemed like a funny hand to open with in this atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. I just I just wanted to play a hand, honestly. I wanted to flip up my cards and show them at the end of the hand, hey, I'm, I'm messing around. I'm getting out of line. Let's Let's play... Let's play this game. So take us through um, the action when you opened up Four Deuce. I'll take you through um, my emotions as well as the state of the table. Okay. I open Four Deuce and and we fold around to the cutoff, which is the host. I think he was cutoff. Maybe he was a button. And he's looking nervous. He looks at his cards. It looks like maybe he's thinking about getting involved in this pot. And eventually he does call. And my mood goes from like really excited, like, okay, I'm, I'm mixing things up and everything to like this instantaneous sudden dread uh, as I look at this man's face. And it's sort of like looking at a, like a deer in the headlight sort of thing. Like he looks so nervous. He looks so serious. I can imagine that poker is this very important game to him. And he's finally getting to play this hand against the professional at the table. And he's thinking back to all of these years of like reading Harrington's Hold'em and Super System. And he's, he's studied for this moment. And I'm just sitting there with four deuce offsuit drinking a beer. And I just, I thought right at the start, as he called me, 
I decided, okay, I'm not trying to win this hand. I'm trying to make it so I can maybe get invited back to the game. Let's see if I can work out how to extract myself from this situation that way. Blinds folded. Uh, it was just us, the flop. What about the flop? Did he seem to be stressed out playing you, basically? At what point were you actually like looking closely at him when the flop came? And if you wanted to lose the hand, then you know it shouldn't be that hard, right? You just have to check fold at some point in the hand. That's a tricky thing for me, and this has been a conflict for me for my entire life, and I think it is for a lot of people who play games competitively, is that I understand how to do something competitively, and I understand how to do something for fun, but I have a lot of difficulty looking at bottom pair in this situation and just check folding, because I think it's wrong, and I think that it's important to play the game well. Uh, to some extent. I feel like it would be doing a disservice to this gentleman to just check and fold my bottom pair. There was a consideration that there's some point at which maybe I can get away with that. And I'm thinking about these different lines. Like maybe I can triple barrel bluff and then I'm like, oh, what if I hit trips though and beat them? Well, that would be really awkward. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe I can go for the check fold or I could like go for a check raise or something and then just muck my cards on the river. I, my, my mind is going a mile a minute here because I've played millions of hands of poker, but I've never actually really thought through how you lose a hand and get out of it without embarrassing yourself or the other person you're playing with. Interesting. So yeah, so the by the way, the flop came jack, seven, four, rainbow. So as you mentioned, you hit bottom pair and you do check. And then, then the possibility of check folding um, to, you know, save everyone's face and make the hand very, you know, short and, and peaceful, relatively peaceful, um, is foiled because he bets a tiny amount on the flop, right? Yeah, he does that thing that very casual poker players sometimes do where they basically min-bap. Like he picked the small chips and he put them in the middle of the pot. And honestly, I still to this day don't always understand what different people are trying to do when that happens is he like roping me along with a strong hand is he thinking he's looking like he has a strong hand and he wants me to bluff but he's just not thinking about the pot odds that he's giving me and i only have to be good such a small percentage of the time sort of thing i don't really know but i have to call a 10th pot bet this is I, this is just a thing that I'm fairly confident about in the world. I think the world would be wrong if I if I folded there, surely. If you folded, it would just feel like so weird as somebody who's played games your entire life. It just gives you the sense of, of awkwardness, which I, I totally get. So the turn was an eight bringing a flush draw and you checked again and he bet super small again. Yeah, and, and what am I meant to do? I just, I just figured I call. Like maybe I can turn my hand into a bluff, and we have some equity hitting trips. But I don't think I can fold. And then the river came, another eight, and you checked again, and again he min bets, right? Or he bets yeah, very, very he, small. He just looks defeated as he makes the bet. Like he looks like I just caught him stealing candy in the kitchen and I'm his dad or something. It's just, <laughs> I just felt very uncomfortable in this situation as I'm looking and I make the call and, and I win the hand and I have to show the cards that I just did that with. And, and I did not get invited back to the game. <laughs> and, and honestly, the rest of the night um, was, was not a lot of fun. And 
this situation has just perplexed me ever since really as i as i try to navigate that line between being a competitive poker player being incredibly skilled at this game and the fact that games can also be used for recreation and fun and they can be collaborative and everybody can enjoy them and this was a situation where I just could not work out how to get the thing that I wanted out of the game that I was supposedly uh, an incredible master of. Did you feel, so you say you never got invited back to the game, but do you also feel like some sense that he was humiliated after you showed the four deuce off on the um, jack seven, four, eight, eight, um, after he had bet three times, probably not realizing that his bets were so small that there was a very um, low likelihood that you could fold um, you know, anything that had any potential? Definitely. And, you know, in my mind, I can see him like winding down that night, just thinking about the hand and and not understanding quite what went wrong. Like some magic was going on in my head that maybe he couldn't understand when, of course, in my head, having played the game professionally for such a long time, it was just like I had a pair and I didn't feel like I could fold to those. That's they were too small. There wasn't that much more complex going on in my in my mechanical decisions there. Did you consider just explaining that to him? Like, oh, you know, that's like a good place to to bet three times, but you have to bet a little bit bigger. Maybe I could have done that. Maybe I could have like sort of played table captain and done the thing where you explain a little bit about your strategy and what you're thinking as you play. It didn't feel like the right atmosphere for it to me, but this was a situation where I just could not work out what the thing to do in the atmosphere was. I feel like that could have worked because then you could also, it could also be like a compliment in a way, like, you know, that's a really like great spot to, to bed and try to get me off of a hand, but doing it so small is just so unlikely to work. I mean, you have to believe the first thing if you do think it's a good spot for him to do that. And yeah, like I, I, I feel like I've done that sometimes in like charity events and stuff when people are new, um, give them that kind yeah. of advice. You were very uncomfortable afterwards because you just had created this tension by playing this out of this world hand and you know you felt like you hum- humiliated the host because of his mannerisms afterwards yeah and i'm sure that almost anybody else in the entire world could have navigated that situation better than i did despite the fact that i thought i was a good poker player i just didn't understand really what it was to be playing in a live game with these other people who are playing poker for fun and so on and so forth for me these games were competitive for me it was important to me that i was a winner of these games that was part of my self-identity it was part of my self-worth it was something that helped me sleep at night and wake up in the morning feeling purpose and that hand it's the it's the most recent hand of poker that i remember playing i finished up the night but i I haven't sought out poker since and that hand was something that sort of catalyzed an entire change in how I treated games in my life as I sort of recognized that these things that I'd learned sitting on the floor of my grandfather's office were taking me away from people and and making me place importance on something that I didn't actually care that much about. And now I'm sitting here and I have this channel which has apparently 65,000 followers. <laughs> I didn't realize I, I broke that number, but that's cool. Uh, full of people who watch me play a game where I explain exactly what I'm doing and I'm open to anybody joining and I want to help people win and I don't mind too much if I lose. And it's, it's been a really fascinating journey for me from that hand. But here's the thing that 
that um, perplexes me. Because four deuce off is obviously like a terrible hand to open, even if you're playing against weak opponents. Or like, even if you're playing against inexperienced opponents, it's, you know, not good to open four deuce off suit, right? So you played that part of the hand badly on purpose, but then you felt like you weren't really able to play the rest, the rest of the hand, you kind of felt like obliged to play well. Uh, Magic the Gathering podcast that I was on like 12 years ago explained this phenomenon in just the perfect way. It was called um, boiling all of your mistakes in a decision down to deck selection, or I guess opening hand selection in, in this case. But I think some part of my brain was willing to make a mistake pre-flop, but felt like post-flop was this sacred space that I had to try to navigate at least somewhat competently. Interesting, because I do think that's like a thing that people do in in like uh, home games, charity events. On Twitch, I've been doing a special grid show, um, and the idea is to play every hand on the grid at least once. And so I use that same Mm -hmm. kind of philosophy where... Um, pre-flop, obviously, I'm opening up because I want to click them off the grid. But then post-flop, I'm trying to play as best as possible. I feel like that is something that happens, that people loosen up pre-flop, but that, as you say, post-flop, they feel more sacred about making mistakes. Maybe because it feels like pre-flop, there's a sense that playing more hands is brave. Um, and that might be like a relic of the old days of poker when it wasn't as mathematically um, solved well, not that it's solved now, but various ranges are solved in certain spots and people know that four deuce off is not open. But there was a sense that opening hands like that, three betting hands like that was like a sign of bravery. Whereas um, post-flop seems to be more of like, oh, like this is an intelligence test. I don't know if this has maybe changed in the last uh, almost 10 years. But another thing I'd say is there was a mentality that you opened hands which were mistakes pre-flop because you're better than the other people at post-flop. And so you can justify opening a hand that should be losing against good opponents because it can be winning in this game. And if you start making mistakes post-flop as well, then your argument breaks. Yeah, totally. And there's like a lot, I think that's still an argument, um, just more in the margins, not on the four deuce offs under the gun. (laughs) Well, makes rates. You said it was the king of spades? Okay, no, never mind. It's all good now. Luckily, <laughs> luckily, I'm not breaking down the grid that far. Thank thank goodness. But yeah, some people are like, oh, can I have like the the red aces? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not going color by color or suit by suit. So that's really interesting that this you feel like this hand is emblematic of a shift against like the hyper competition of head-to-head combat and the potential experience of humiliating your opponent. Now, I'm not as familiar with the the games that you play, like Slay the Spire. And are you saying that in the games that you have transitioned to since Poker, Chess, Magic, The Gathering are um, less zero-sum and less potentially humiliating? (laughs) Well, I I feel like I humiliate myself all the time. But for the most part, I'm playing single-player games where it is the player against the puzzle or artificial intelligence or experience that has been created for you some of the games i play don't really even have a way to win it's just like a story that you're experiencing and and walking through so games for narrative um games for personal challenge and growth games which try to emulate the experience of overcoming anxiety 
definitely I'm playing games that are no longer me thinking about how to be the person on the positive column of this zero-sum exchange. Fascinating. So Slay the Spire is a game where it's a single-player game, so you're not playing against another person. But isn't there still lots of like competitive records? Like you're trying to you know, be the fastest one to do X, Y, Z. And how is that different than Zero Sum? That's absolutely true. And I actually held the world record for a variety of different things in Slay the Spire at different points over the last two or three years. And I'm generally pointed to as one of the better players in the world. But the important thing for me has been that that it hasn't been important to me that I have more wins than somebody else or more wins in a row than someone else or a faster one than someone else. What's been important to me is that I feel like I have as many wins as I can achieve personally. And also that I'm willing to show other people how I'm doing this and try to help them achieve as many wins as they can do personally. And I actually had to like stop advertising things that were world records for me because the conversation that they were bringing into my community was based around that competitiveness and talking about, well, are you worried that so-and-so is going to break your record and coming back to this over and over again? And that wasn't really what it was about for me anymore and isn't really what it's about for me anymore. That's wonderful. I mean, as somebody who's always been trying to popularize games like chess and poker, especially to girls in the case of chess and, you know, women in the case of both chess and poker, I feel like I often do wish that there were a way for the games to be less competitive. Not that women and girls aren't competitive. Many of them are. But for people who are less competitive, who don't really want to, you know, crush someone and don't certainly don't want to be crushed. And I feel like in both games, there are some opportunities for that. In chess, there's like puzzle solving and problem solving, which seems kind of more similar to the type of game that you describe where you still could compete against other people in terms of like who can solve the problem first, but it could also be considered more collaborative in that you could also both solve it. Yeah, and poker and chess both have incredible opportunities for collaboration. Um, Watching Peter Sviedler and Magnus Carlsen talking about their game after the fact and going through all the different lines that they could have played is incredible, absolutely amazing. And watching even just a, a training video for a poker game where the coach is talking about, well, we could have taken this line, we could have done this, often breaking down a hand that they played against someone else where instead of talking about how they were trying to beat the other person, they're talking about how both of the players involved in the hand are trying to understand how ranges work in this situation, what the correct way to play the ranges of cards that they could have is. So I think anybody who plays one of these games at a very high level, you've learned how to play it from someone else. There's some instinct for collaboration in their built into becoming good at these games. But it's always fighting with that competitive instinct where you're trying to hide your strategy and you're trying to outwit your opponent and and get one up on them. And that's something that I just had so much trouble resolving that eventually I just found a way to cut it out entirely, basically. Because what you're describing, I think, is the culture around chess and poker are so rich and collaborative and it's really just an awesome aspect of the games. But the games themselves are still zero sum, right? I mean, it's not like both people can win. It's just that afterwards, you can both kind of win the postmortem in in terms of like learning a lot and having a good time, right? Yeah, and the the show that you create for viewers could be said to be positive sum. 
um, the theory that's being advanced by the games could be said to be positive sound. Joe Tall's series on Buddhism that a bunch of poker pros watched to learn about how to meditate was certainly positive some. So there's all sorts of positive some aspects surrounding these games. It's just at their core, when you play them and compete, yeah, they are zero-sum games. But yeah, the puzzle and problem-solving aspect of chess like excites me in that I think that that is one aspect that sounds more like the games that you play. And even in poker now, there's like games like DTO where you're trying to, you know, play um, an AI and you're using a solver. You're you're trying to get as close to like the solver strategy as possible. And that kind of reminds me of like chess game where if player A and player B are, I mean, chess, uh, chess solving and that if player A and player B are both playing the, this DTO, actually both of them could do really well, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm excited to see more and more how these games, we're getting so good at talking about them and so good about understanding what's building the right strategy in them. And I'm just really excited to see how that translates to people spinning off into the world and and making incredible coaching content or shows or puzzle games or writing great uh autobiographies. I I read Sasha Chapin's memoir, All the Wrong Moves, about trying to be a chess player and just being very mediocre at it. And it was incredible. I absolutely loved all of his storytelling. There's a ton of really cool stuff in these games. But for me, it's almost like a battle between good and evil or something where there's also that competitiveness and that zero sum that ate at me for so long in my life. And I had periods of depression when I was on a downswing because I wondered if maybe I wasn't good enough not to beat the game, but not good enough to be like worth talking about as a human being because that competitiveness was so important to me. I think if you look at the world, you see that positive sum spinning out from these games, but you see the competitiveness that's present in them spinning out in other places too. And that just really worries me. For every situation where we can talk about a positive sum collaborative thing that spun out from chess or poker, we can look at a site that's running a poker tournament that's very exploitative and being raked way too heavily, or advertising to problem gamblers, or uh, a game that's made for kids, but it's using loot boxes all of a sudden because they've found out how to monetize this gambling. Yeah. And then in chess, I think that something inherent to chess that I find um, troublesome in terms of like making it an emotionally positive EV game is the blunder. Like that's like it really bugs me because I love chess. I love what it can do for children and like it can stay with you your whole life. But I just like wish there was something we could do about making people just feel so terrible when they blunder, so humiliated, horrible about themselves. And I hate that there's that emotional aspect of chess, although perhaps that's intrinsically tied, inextricably tied to feeling proud of yourself when you are able to focus the whole game and not blunder. I'm not sure, but man, does it feel bad to blunder. And like when you're talking about all these things, I'm just like, I, I almost hate that children have to feel that. But maybe it's a good model for like, you know, messing up so badly in some other aspect that you've hurt your life so badly that you can't go back from it maybe there is some positive function of blundering and learning about how that feels and trying not to do it yeah and obviously as a as a perhaps 1600 rated chess player i 
have no idea what you're talking about. I have never blundered in my entire life. Uh Um, So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Something that you learn fairly quickly as a streamer who plays games that are very difficult and no one in the world can play them perfectly in front of thousands of people is that uh, it's not that big a deal to blunder. Like, that's just what happens when you play a hard game. I think of it, I think of chess more as like two people competing against chess because, wow, chess is tough. <laughs> and if either of you can go a full game without making a horrific blunder, that is tremendously impressive. And and more commonly, I would expect, like, you see, you know, in Carlson Anand, he's blundering a pawn and then he's missing that the pawn was blundered. Like, that's just what happens even at the highest level. Yeah, I guess the, the word blunder kind of changes depending on how good you are. But I still think of it as something like gross, like hanging like a piece or something or more, like anything more than a piece. But uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I feel like that's the one area where you can't like say that chess is similar to life. And this probably correlates to poker as well, because it's not like you're walking around like hoping that you don't just fall flat on your face. Like that, that's somehow how I feel about like chess or poker, that you're literally, it would be like similar to walking down the street and having to like, make sure that you didn't just like fall on your nose like so every (laughs) step you would be like wait a second i can't i need to make sure i don't fall on my nose like i don't just like fall flat on the ground (laughs) and that is of course would not be a pleasant way to walk down the street but in a way that is what we're doing in chess and poker but there's so many other great things about it and not least mentioning that when our opponent does that we get to capitalize on it and that feels pretty awesome so that's like the flip side right yeah you're walking with someone and you're engaging in a recreational activity together and they fall flat on their nose and then you laugh at them and kick them and then you feel good it's it's a very odd exchange (laughs) it's a very evocative and um strong image um that sort of description is a blunder but and actually, I have people come to me talking about how to get over making mistakes in the sorts of games that we play and using very comparable metaphors. And the thing that I always point out is that we're like in bodies that have evolved for millions of years or whatever to be able to walk. Like, we've both been very brave. We walk around on both legs. One of my favorite song lyrics from a Wolf Parade song. We, we learned that when we're like two or three. It's just sort of hard-coded into us. A game like chess or poker, that's something magical and new. That's a tremendous human accomplishment to be able to do anything. And like to learn the rules is dramatic and incredible. And I think you have to give yourself some credit if you're walking at all in a game like that. And and yeah, you'll fall over sometimes. And I, I think that's okay. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. The problem is like being afraid of blundering certainly doesn't really make it a lot less likely. It's kind of like when you're super aware that you might lose your keys or your phone, um, you just never lose them, right? It's always when you're kind of more in that like flow state that um, something something happens, right? So I, you, you can't really go into a game and say like, I'm not going to blunder this game and for that to really have much of an impact. I like the direction you're talking, but I got to ask because one of the things that has fascinated me about streaming um, long before I actually started streaming was that the language around it to me seemed um, 
very um, hyper competitive, actually. Like, like there, it was almost like a game within a game that there was the game that people were playing, but then also there was this game of climbing up the Twitch rankings and getting as many fo- simultaneous viewers and as many followers and subs as possible. So because I'm in, you know, broadcasting and poker and chess, even before I started streaming, I was very aware of this like aspect of the culture. Speak to that. Is is that different in the different games? And um, has that bothered you as well? I definitely know what you're talking about with that aspect of the culture. And I think some of it is packaged specifically toward advertisers more than toward broadcasters even so some of the language evolves around how many viewers you have concurrently and you get sites that rank you and like say you're number 1023 ranked this month uh, because you have a certain number of viewers and a certain number of subs and as a streamer i don't really care like an advertiser cares because they'll pay me a slightly different amount of money for advertising stuff but honestly if their product isn't something i want to present to my audience I, i don't care about that either Anyway, something that became very apparent to me as a poker player was that if I was maximizing anything in my life to make myself happiest, it it definitely wasn't going to be money. I was the sort of poker player who could beat the games I was playing pretty comfortably, but once I had like $60,000 in my bank account, I had a lot of trouble motivating myself to play. It was like, okay, I'm going to go travel to Italy for three months. I'm not going to sit at home and play more poker right now. And... As a streamer coming up through the ranks, you do have to think about growth and how am I going to get that next viewer? How am I going to get that next sub? But for me, the framing of it was always, how am I going to create value to people who want to hang out in a community that I'm building? And for me, huge growth events in my streaming career were not getting one up on another person and like breaking their world record. They were running a week of charity events where I had other streamers on to collaborate on things together. And all of our channels saw growth at the same time. Now I'm at a point where I make more money than I need to be happy. Like I'm, I'm, I have more than that $60,000 in my bank account, but I actually have a job that I wake up every morning wanting to do. And I have this incredible luxury and blessing where I get to look at this business that I'm running and think, okay, I run a business and it doesn't have to maximize for money. I can maximize for something else. And working out what exactly I want that to be over the past year or two has been incredible. It's been just really, really cool. And I'm starting to see a built-in LGBTQIA plus sort of support thread in my discord and i'm starting to see a community build out of that in my channel i've tried to build mental health support into my channel and i'm seeing people reach out for help there i live not for the paycheck that arrives every month but for the email from a viewer saying hey i was really struggling at work and your content got me through a tough month uh thank you and that's what that's what causes my voice to start breaking and, and me to get a little bit excited about what I do these days. Yeah. So there's a competitiveness, but it's a world where I'm one person running one channel and I can eventually choose to do that however I want. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing I've learned from this uh this lockdown era is just how much 
how important it is. And I think people who went to business school or just, you know, generally were, um, you know, raised with very frugal values might have known long before this is that, you know, it's, it's not a really about how much money you make. It's about, you know, having, um, enough to live on so that you can, you know, provide value and do what you want. And it's, streaming seems to me as something that it, it actually would be difficult to spend a ton of money because the hours are, are pretty long and you are at home and beyond, beyond like technology and supporting other streams, there's just not a lot of ways to like overspend. I mean, so um, that allow, I think that that's kind of like an inbuilt way to allow you to kind of like value other things in life. I definitely don't spend a lot of time going out to the mall or anything to, I mean, my, my life is plugged into my stream largely or relaxing and chilling out the rest of the time. And I'm not super into retail therapy. So spending money isn't a huge deal for me. I will say for people who are thinking about getting into streaming, like setting up the studio and the computer equipment is probably $10,000 uh, if you want a really good one. And there's always like a therapist to pay for it's been very helpful to invest in therapy as someone who's started to try to build a community that consciously engages with people's like mental health issues as a as a support for some of them getting getting that stuff worked out for myself and and trying to learn some language to use with other people as well that costs some money um working with other consultants who will advise you on how to build the art assets for your channel, working with people who are interested in bringing you sponsors. Maybe I have someone on payroll just weekly who deals with sponsors 10 hours a week of sending emails and working out my brand exactly and stuff like that. I have people who do my YouTube. So it's running a business. I have employees I pay, but they definitely make more money than I'm putting out by a long shot. I think that one of the great things about Twitch, and I've seen a lot of young um, chess players during this lockdown period where they don't have school start their own Twitch channels. And I just think it's brilliant because it's like a crash course in business and technology. I mean, or at least a certain aspect of technology and in streaming and, you know, audio and visual. And I think that, you know, just getting to know your computer better, your machine, like once you stream, you have to do that. And there's really no way to learn it except doing it yourself. Even if you don't end up becoming like professional or doing it super regularly, just as in a person in the industries of chess and poker, I think that it's tremendously valuable to try it yourself, right, for a few weeks because it's impossible not to learn like a million things that you would never learn just like reading countless articles about Twitch. Absolutely. And if you're not a person who's trying to do this for your career, you get to jump past all the hurdles where you were trying to make a bunch of viewers and a bunch of subs in the beginning, and you just get to go in on the ground floor, getting to do whatever you want. There's the viewer numbers there, but I, I turn it off. I don't look at it while I'm broadcasting. I, I rarely track that at all. I'm, I'm there building a community, interacting with people who are in chat playing a game I love and, and making content for that. And that's what's important about Twitch for me. By the way, my perspective on streaming before I started doing it was that it was like super hyper competitive. Um, when I started, I did I did sense more of that community atmosphere that you mentioned, which is another reason I'm glad I tried it because I, I think I maybe had the wrong impression, perhaps because I was looking at the top streamers and the dialogue around them is obviously going to be a little bit more metric based 
because the metrics are so impressive. I even saw a tweet by you um, about streaming tips because obviously, you know, when you're a popular streamer um, with so many people getting into that field, that's like the first question people ask you. And you wrote, when people ask me for trip tips for starting streaming, I'm like, well, I started chess when I was three and spent three years running a satire page for a high school paper, hit number one on Magic the Gathering online, then lucked into poker and was one of the best in the world. We're up to 10 years ago. Can you describe what you meant by that tweet? Sounds pretty competitive, doesn't it? It does. It does. That's why I'm kind of surprised. I didn't realize that from that tweet, I expected something completely different from you. Yeah, that was a, that was a, like, what do you call it? A quote tweet. Uh, I was retweeting Brian Kevler's tweet, which was about how he never knows how to explain to people how to make it as a streamer. And that tweet was more angled toward people who come to me asking about streaming, thinking that it can become their career. Thinking that streaming can become your career entails believing that you can like handle the stress of building a community of people who are going to demand entertainment from you, who are going to expect some types of support from you, who are going to choose to watch you over other people who are incredible. There are so many incredible streamers. I only recently started getting more viewers than Bob Ross and he's been dead for like quite a long time. So it's, it's, uh, it can be tough to build a channel where you're making money in streaming. And a lot of the time when people come to you asking, what are your tips to get going as a streamer? What they mean is like, how can they grow their channel to have hundreds of viewers so they can make money? And the, the honest answer is like, not that many people can do that. There are very specific things you have to do to succeed, which may completely ruin the experience of streaming for you. And there may be like barriers to entry that aren't realistic. I didn't make minimum wage as a streamer until I think a year and a half into my streaming career, but I had money saved from poker. So I really fortunately got to do that. And that's a story for a lot of people who are successful as streamers is that they're coming from somewhere else and have the ability to try to launch themselves with their business. But yeah, maybe the more positive and happy answer to the question is like sit down with your computer and a camera and a microphone if you want but honestly both of those are optional and and do what you want and what makes you feel good that's the positive spin on the answer to the question it's just you don't want to tell people you don't want to give people expectations that they can sit at their computer and play video games however they want and make a career out of it because Providing value as a streamer to your viewers is sometimes quite hard. And that's the thing that's really going to grow your channel and turn this into something that is maybe a career. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I totally see what you mean, not wanting to give people like false expectations. Um, I also read this as in a tweet that was saying, you know, if you want to be super successful at streaming, one way to do it is just to be extremely good at a lot of different things. <laughs> because then obviously at the point that you're streaming, you're you're providing value from like all of the hard work um, that you put in to all of these activities to get super good at them um, as an alternative path to maybe not being quite as good at everything, but, you know, just grinding so many hours and really working on your personality to to build an audience that way. That was kind of how I read it. 
one thing that's happened more and more recently, and I mean, I'm doing it right now in coming on here and talking with you, is that getting involved on Twitter and getting more and more well-known as a person creating content for Slay the Spire and Slay the Spire is itself becoming more and more known as a very good strategy roguelike is people are reaching out to me and, and wanting to chat with me. And sometimes I'm like looking at this person and I'm thinking to myself, am I the sort of person who gets to talk to like a published author who's spent years traveling and written a memoir that was mentioned on Good Morning America? And then it turns out that, yeah, actually this person wants to like hang out with me on Discord and chat and we're going to become really good friends quickly. Peter Sfiedler reached out to me and that was like almost a religious experience for me because I grew up reading the 500 Grandmaster games of chess and thinking, oh, I want to be part of this tradition. And then Peter Sfiedler's in my channel watching me play Slay the Spire. <laughs> and I was like, Polberta, are you the Polberta? And he was like, yeah, that's about how you pronounce it. And I was like, no, are you the Polberta? <laughs> uh, that was a starstruck moment for me. So more and more I'm able to connect to other people and when I can't serve my community as an interesting person anymore because I've just been streaming this game for the last eight hours guy there's nothing new with my life uh, <laughs> I hope there's something new with yours well I can ask my community if anything's going on interesting with them or I can have a guest on I can talk about my chat with Sasha last night I can do something like that and more and more it becomes a community where not only are other people getting something from the experience, but also other people are bringing things to the experience in my community at this point. And I'm trying to facilitate that as much as I can. I love it. I love it. That's a great explanation. And I, I totally get that. It, you know, one person, when they were trying to convince me to stream, actually, they used this phrase that like scared me off a little bit, although now I'm less of a hater. They said that I should, I should stream, but I should still make sure to watch movies and read books because they're great conversational currency. Like I, when I heard this phrase conversational currency, I was like, it sounded so scary. This commodification <laughs> of personality and the ability to converse. Oh, yeah. um, it, it makes sense. You know, that is, I guess that, you know, capitalism ends up uh, taking a, a little bit of a crack of everything, but I had never heard of that, that before. So it terrified me. Yeah. And it's important for me, very important that like before I jumped on this interview, I spent four hours with friends having a conversation that I'm never going to commoditize. And and the most I will is to mention that I had it right now, but I'm not going to talk about what we said in there. I'm not going to talk about who they were or anything like that. It's important to me that I can step away from commoditizing almost every part of my life and have some normalcy where I'm just a human being. And that's like, a huge priority in my weekly schedule is having at least like six hours where I'm doing that. Yeah, super hard, especially now, right? I haven't seen anybody other than my uh, partner in real life for a couple of months. <laughs> uh, we have Zoom calls and we have uh, Discord and Twitter. Yeah. So Slay the Spire, should poker players start playing it? Like, is it a kind of game that you can get something out of intellectually and creatively, even if you only put in a little bit of time in it, or you really have to go full hog? Should poker players try it? There's a huge crossover between poker players and Magic the Gathering players. And I would say that Slay the Spire is sort of like a deliberate single player Magic the Gathering type experience. So I think 
poker players who are listening probably would have some idea of whether Magic the Gathering was appealing to them. And if it was, and they wanted something that they could do on their own, or maybe like on a flight on a, a Switch or something like that, honestly, the Spire would definitely be a game to check out. What kind of skills do you, do you think like cross over between um, the single player strategy games that you play and your previous experience in poker? So the Spire is a card game. You draw five cards every turn from a deck of cards. And so there's a huge amount of working out probabilities, like what will be in my hand? Can it do the thing that I'm going to need to do? What's coming up next in my deck? What sorts of distributions of hands might I draw? And and how well will they perform on the next turn when I need to do the thing I need to do on the next turn? There's also, you do build the deck as you go through a game of Slay the Spire. And so... If you think your strategy is a little bit deficient in one area and needs to be better at dealing with a certain enemy, you need to pick up a card to address that problem. And if you think it's like really, really good at something, you have to make a decision on are you going to lean into that thing more and try to use that solution to problems that maybe aren't quite suited for it, but you're just really strong in it? Or are you going to try to diversify and deal with the varied problems that the game presents with solutions which all seem sort of more appropriate? For me, it feels a lot like building mixed ranges in poker and understanding what's going to happen on certain turns and rivers and, and stuff like that. All those skills are getting challenged constantly. How do you know about mixed ranges? You stopped playing poker nine years ago. <laughs> I paid four bitcoins back in 2008, 2009 for an online solver subscription that could solve turns. But I only got 30 turns per month with my Bitcoin subscription. I was pretty early on the GTO stuff. Was it worth it? Probably not. It wasn't advanced enough that you could actually make the insides that people are getting yet. There were some things that I was like starting to pick up on, like leading turns. I know that we call it leading turns instead of donk betting now because we worked out that it was good. And I always sort of smile at that because I was like, why wouldn't I bet here? Isn't my range stronger than his or hers or theirs? It was always his when I was playing poker. And then I got out into the world and realized that there are people who I can play games with who aren't like sort of the symmetrical villain version of me, which was very exciting. Now I say theirs. That's wonderful. Yeah, I love that. We've talked a couple of times in the interview about toxic competitiveness in poker. And you said it was one of the things that exhausted you to a point where you had trouble enjoying anything um, player versus player. What advice do you have for like the poker industry to like, or even just like a poker player who feels like maybe they do have that, what you call toxic competitive drive to still be as good at the game, but maybe let go of some of that? For me, when I was playing poker, I feel like almost half of my energy was going into like table selection and finding the right places to be playing and the right seats to be sitting in. And when you're focusing so much on that, you start to think about like, okay, how am I going to play the game in a way that's going to get this person who's playing for fun to come back again tomorrow. People have to be willing to commit money to poker stars or whatever site we're playing on, or else my ability to live off the zero-sum game doesn't exist anymore. And something that I found somewhat healthy and rewarding in poker was being a presence at the table. I could maybe chat with you a little bit. I could play hands in a way that was maybe a little bit fun and maybe emote a little bit. And the fact that that part of poker existed for me 
was really interesting. I feel like it's still not explored properly. If you're a small business owner who makes money by playing poker at poker tables, a tremendous amount of your job has to be finding the right poker tables. That can turn the game into something that can be positive sum. If you have people sitting at the table who win by having fun, and you have people at the table who win by making money, poker doesn't have to be a zero-sum game anymore in that world. That's a great way to look at it. And I think that people do talk about that in reference to like um, getting into good private games, but it, it, it always seems to be like an assumption that if you're having a good time and you're entertaining and that you're trying to make it fun for other people, that it's disingenuous and fake. But um, that's definitely not always the case. I mean, it could be fake, but it could also just be like genuinely wanting everybody to have a good time and, you know, having this like dual goal of making money, which I think is frankly what most recreational players are after too. They're not trying to lose maximum money. Their primary goal might be to have fun and their secondary goal is to win money. Whereas like for a pro, it's just flipped, right? Nobody wants to have a bad time playing the game that they're playing as far as, well, as far as I know. I'm sure we can meet some people who feel that way. Especially after yeah. they after they're down a lot of money. They just like don't want anybody to have a good time. There are people who definitely have trouble with playing poker where it's a negative influence in their life, but they can't work out how to stop coming back. And I think part of the reason that I started to get invested in working out how this could be a game that would be fun to play for enjoyment for some people was that I wanted to be able to ethically tell myself that I wasn't just making money from people who were there because they couldn't stop themselves. I wanted to be able to be making money from people who were there because it was a positive part of their life. And going back now to the four deuce off, if you um, put yourself back in that, you know, home game where you were heads up against the host with a uh, bottom pair, is there anything you would have done differently today? Professional poker player, like giving advice on hands. Maybe I wouldn't have even been playing all of the hands, but maybe I would have been making rounds of the table, just chatting to people about their strategy and why they played that way. And maybe giving advice if it was welcome about things they could mix up. I'd want to be like recommending books and video series that I thought were helpful for me learning the game. And fortunately, at this point in, in history, you can recommend like a really sweet Twitch poker stream like Lex at 50,000 plus viewers yesterday, I think. So I'd be telling them like get on Twitch and watch these good players playing poker there. For me, the the thing looking back at it now that harrows me is how much that night was about that one hand I played and not about the people who were there or the other things that I did or the conversations that I had away from the table. And, and those all seem like the things that were actually important, not so much the hand. Yeah, that's true about Twitch. Um, Lex was like the most popular English language streamer on Twitch the day that he got 50,000, right? And I think Hikaru just like a day after or day before was the most popular um, playing chess. So chess and poker, you know, just shooting up there to the top is, you know, what a time. It's really good to see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is really just like a completely different perspective of somebody who shifted to a game um, quite deliberately that was zero sum at least in the actual gameplay not necessarily in the benefits to society or to the players and did so very deliberately and i just find that incredibly fascinating for um personally for my work in in terms of uh you know making chess more accessible and bringing it to more girls and women and then also on poker so 
It's uh, it's really great to have had you on. And what are the best ways for people to find you? Obviously on twitch.tv slash jorbs. And then sometimes you also go by Jornerbs, right? Where do these names come from? So in between Jorbs or Joe in Ribs was a play on words that I thought was really clever when I was 12. And I've been trying to get away from it ever since. But it's hard to it's hard to name change to Jorbs everywhere. Some some places it's still on use. Got it. Okay. In between Jorbs. Got it. All right. Well, that, that makes it a little easier. And you can find him on Twitch, of course, and YouTube, as well as um twitter all the places thank you so much jorbs on for a deuce offsuit clicking off a really important cell on the grid thank you so much for listening to the poker grid go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network we're on apple podcast stitcher spotify we also really appreciate your reviews and ratings they really do help We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.